your Bibles to Job chapter 16. We're going to be continuing our series through the book of Job. This is entitled God and Suffering. It wrestles with a lot of the big questions on the topic of suffering. And this morning, because they they go together and, and we're trying to make good use of our time as we go through, we're actually going to be taking Job 16 and 17. So Job 16, 1 through chapter 17, 16. So two chapters. Please join me in a prayer. Heavenly Father, as we approach your word this morning, we ask for the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit. Please open our eyes to see not only the true meaning of this passage, but what you would be teaching us through this passage. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Sarah was good at math. She had always done very well in school, A's. It just kind of came naturally to her, and once she got into high school, it was a little more challenging, but she still found it fairly easy to, to get through math. And she was sitting in class one day, and a boy named Dylan was right next to her. He leaned over and he said, do you understand all this? She said, yes. And he said, well, could you maybe tutor me? You know, just, just help me out? And Sarah thought, eh, I don't know if I really want to do that or not. And he said, it would really be helping me out. I, just 30 minutes a week, that's all. I could come to you, we could meet right here after school. I'd even pay you. She said, well, okay, that sounds fine. So over the next few weeks, she tutored Dylan. They would meet in a common area or on the front steps of the school. But then later on uh, in the year, he started basketball, and he told her, I, he said, I can't make after school anymore, but I, I would come to your house if that's okay with you. And she said, well, let me ask my parents, and she did. She said, yeah, that'll work out next Tuesday. And so next Tuesday, Dylan showed up at Sarah's house, and his, um, her parents greeted him. He came in, he, he shook the dad's hand, he engaged them in conversation, he uh, acted like an adult, and uh, then they went into the kitchen to sit down and do some math tutoring. And mom would walk in once in a while just to check in and, and see how things were going. And when she walked in, the math book was open, but there really wasn't a whole lot of tutoring going on. They were, they were laughing, they were joking, there was some teasing, there was talking about things at school, about music, and, and what TV shows they were watching, and things like that. And she made her way back into the family room, and she told her husband, she said, um, there's not a whole lot of tutoring going on in there. She said, I think there's something else going on. She said, I think Dylan is trying some covert dating. This really isn't about tutoring. It's about getting to know Sarah. And she was right. She was right. Dylan had pulled it off. He managed to, to meet with her over several weeks. He managed to get invited to her home. He managed to meet her parents, all without going on a formal date. There was something else going on. So as we look at Job chapter 16 and 17, there's something else going on in Job chapter 16 and 17. 
This is Job responding to Eliphaz's second speech. Remember, we're in the second round of the friends speaking to Job and and providing their counsel. And there's something else going on. To be sure, Job gives expression to his uh, pain and his, his suffering. He laments the fact that God has seemingly turned against him, and he dwells a lot on death. But there's this something else going on here, and we don't want to miss it, because if we miss it, we're going to miss God's intentional purpose in writing this book. If, if we miss what's what the, the something else going on, then we're going to miss one of God's intended purposes for the book of Job. In other words, God wants us to see the something else that's going on here. So we don't want to miss it. Let's let's take a look. In addition to Job crying out in pain and dwelling in death, what, we're going to see what else is, is going on here. So let's read through these chapters now, starting at verse six, uh, chapter 16, verse 1. Then Job answered and said, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. Shall windy words have an end? Or what provokes you that you answer? I also could speak as you do if you were in my place. I could join words together against you and shake my head at you. I could strengthen you with my mouth and the solace of my lips would assuage your pain. If I speak, my pain is not assuaged. If I, and if I forbear, how much of it leaves me? Surely now God has worn me out. He has made desolate all my company. And he has shriveled me up, which is a witness against me. And my leanness has risen up against me. It testifies to my face. He has torn me in his wrath and hated me. He has gnashed his teeth at me. My adversary sharpens his eyes against me. Men have gaped at me with their mouth. They have struck me insolently on the cheek. They mass themselves together against me. God gives me up to the ungodly and casts me into the hands of the wicked. I was at ease, and he broke me apart. He seized me by the neck and dashed me to pieces. He set me up as his target. His archers surround me. He slashes open my kidneys and does not spare. He pours out all pours out my gall on the ground. He breaks me with breach upon breach. He runs upon me like a warrior. I have sewn sackcloth upon my skin, and I have laid my strength in the dust. My face is red with weeping, and on my eyelids is deep darkness. Although there is no violence in my hands, and my prayer is pure. O earth, cover not my blood, and let my cry find no resting place. Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on high. My friends scorn me. My eye pours out tears to God that he would argue the case of a man with God as a son of man does with his neighbor. For when a few years have come, I shall go the way from which I shall not return. My spirit is broken. My days are extinct. The graveyard is ready for me. Surely there are markers about me and my eye dwells on the provocation. Lay down a pledge for me with you. Who is there who will put up security for me? Since you have closed their hearts to understanding, therefore you will not let them triumph. He who informs against his friends to get a share of their property, the eyes of his children will fail. He has made me a byword of the peoples, and I am one before whom men spit. My eye has grown dim with vexation, and all my members are like a shadow. The upright are appalled at this, and the innocent stirs himself up against the godless. 
Yet the righteous holds to his way, and he who has clean hands grows stronger and stronger. Stronger, But you, come on again, all of you, and I shall find, not find a wise man among you. My days are past, my plans are broken off, the desires of my heart. They make night into day, the light, they say, is near to the darkness. If I hope for Sheol as my house, if I make my bed in darkness, if I say to the pit, you are my father, and to the worm, my mother or my sister, where then is my hope? Who will see my hope? Will it go down to the bars of Sheol? Shall we descend together into the dust? Sixteen begins with Job. Remember, he's coming right off of Eliphaz's second speech, so he's answering Eliphaz and the other two friends, but primarily Eliphaz. And he says, I've heard many such things. Job is calling out Eliphaz and saying, I've heard this before. Their, their philosophy, this we call it Bildad's shoe, the idea that there is no such thing as undeserved suffering. And if you see someone that's having a hard time in life, well, then they must have done something to deserve it. That, that, that philosophy that's incorrect, it's not true. But that's, that's what we would call Bildad's shoe. They're wearing that. And, and Job is saying, yeah, I've, I've heard that. I've heard that before. That's nothing new. Others have said the same thing. He may also even be referencing the fact that Eliphaz used a lot of that recycled material. If you remember that from last week, he, he said a lot of the same things he had said before, just a little bit louder and with a little less politeness. Miserable comforters are you all. That's an understatement. Comforters. They're not comforting Job. They're just making it worse. They're not helping Verse 3, shall windy words have an end, or what provokes you that you answer? These are two questions, they're asking the same thing. Job's saying, why are you still here? Why do you keep going with this? It's just windy words. There's, there's no reason for you to continue. Verses 4 and 5, if the, if the tables were turned, I could do the same thing to you. I could do what you're doing. I could join words together against you. But I wouldn't, says Job. I would strengthen and encourage you. The solace of my lips would assuage your pain. That's what he's saying. I could do that, but I wouldn't do that. Why are you doing that to me? Verse 6, he states that uh, he, know, he knew what would, he would say to, to his friends to encourage them to, to lift their pain, but he's, he's saying, but I can't lift my own pain. I can't speak to myself and, and, and encourage me with my own words. He says, if I speak, my pain is not assuaged. How much of it leaves me? He's talking about his pain. The answer is none. None. And then 7 through 17 of chapter 16, this is all one big section, and we're going to call this uh, the worst pain of all. So not only have his three friends turned against him, they're, they're all miserable comforters, but God, seemingly, from Job's perspective, has turned against him. Now, this isn't true, of course, but from, from Joe's perspective, from, it seems like God has cut him off. Instead of being for him, God now seems against him. He begins, surely now God has worn me out. He has made desolation all my company, or has made desolate all my company. He's talking about all his friends and family. Remember, all his children are dead. They're dead in a single day. All his friends, gone. His, his reputation in the community, gone. 
Even his three friends are, are not really treating him like friends. Even his own wife had, had turned against him. He's shriveled me up, which is a witness against me. My leanness has risen up against me. In the ancient Near East, if, if someone was well-fed, if someone had uh, you know, a good amount of, of, of muscle tone and body fat on them, that was a sign of blessing. You must be doing something right because you're eating well. In contrast, if someone was walking around with their ribs sticking out and they're, they're somewhat you know, gaunt, emaciated looking and they, they, you know, they, they've lost all their muscle tone because it's just wasted away, well then you're not doing so well. You're starving to death. And that's, that's not a good thing. Well, that's what Job looks like. He's troubled up. He's wasting away. So that's a witness against him. Because everyone else around him is wearing that Bildad shoe, thinking if, you, if something's bad happened, you must have deserved it. Well, something bad is happening to him, so they're thinking he must have deserved this. It's a witness against him. He has torn me in his wrath and hated me, gnashed his teeth at me, sharpens his eyes against me. So Job, remember, he's not just saying that God has turned his back on him and is ignoring him. He's saying God is coming after him. And God's not neutral here. He's coming after him. Men have gaped at me with their mouth. They have struck me instantly on the cheek. These are the, the enemies. But then in the very next verse he says, God gives me to the ungodly. So he's saying, yes, this is happening, but ultimately it's coming from the hand of God. I was at ease, he broke me apart, seized me by the neck, dashed me to pieces, archers surround me, slashes open my kidneys, breaks me, runs upon me like a warrior. This is language of a violent attack. God versus Job. And that's what hurts so much. That's the worst pain of all. Yes, all those other things hurt. He's lost his health, he's lost his possessions, he's lost his family, but what really hurts the most is that God has turned against him, seemingly. Verse 15 is resignation. I laid my strength in the dust. This is, this is defeat, sadness, despair, lament. Verse 17, he's still maintaining his innocence, though. Did you catch that? In 17, he will not wear Bildad's shoe. Remember, he's resisting that false worldview. There's no violence in my hands. My prayer is pure. He's sticking to his innocence. There are really two takeaways from this big section, 7 through 17, the, the worst pain imaginable. I think, number one, we need to understand the greatest source of Job's suffering was being cut off from God and treated like an enemy. I mentioned that a moment ago. We've already established that the suffering that Job is experiencing is from God. God is the sender of the suffering, but here it is from his own lips. Job is acknowledging that he understands this is from God, and that's the most painful part of his experience. It's that loss of relationship with God. That's what hurts. Which causes us to ask the question, what, what do we fear the most? Um, sharks? Snakes? Maybe. But assuming we're not going to be eaten by a great white or fall into a pit of venomous snakes, our, our more realistic fears would be something like what? Loss of health? Some kind of diagnosis? 
loss of job or income, which could lead to loss of home, loss of our family, perhaps, or would be the worst thing that, that we lost, would, would the worst thing be our relationship with God? See, Jesus asked the same question, Matthew 16, 26, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Would we rather have everything, and I mean everything, but no God? Or would we rather have God and nothing else at all? Yeah, if we were in Sunday school, the Sunday school the correct answer would be, well, I'd rather have God and nothing else, right? And that's, that's the whole point of Matthew 16, 26. That's what's causing Job, Job so much pain. You see, because he has, he's lost everything, and, he, and I mean everything, family, wealth, possessions, reputation, health, I mean everything, it's gone, and he's lost God. Do you see why he's suffering so much? It's both. They're both gone. Now the second thing that this section teaches us is there's something else going on here and I want to wait until we get through the rest of the, the passage and circle around back to it during the, the final application. So just put that on the back burner for a minute. Um, number one is that the greatest source of Job's suffering is the separation from God, his broken relationship. And number two we'll get to in a minute. But then we get to verse 18 and we have another daydream. Remember this from chapter 14? Job was, was kind of thinking out loud and he, he had this daydream. Uh, God would cover his iniquity. His, his transgressions would be sealed up in a bag. He would be raised to, do, to new life. This was his, his daydream. He was, this was his what if. What if this were possible? Remember we affirm that is possible. That's the reality that we have through faith in Jesus Christ. Well, here's another daydream. Verse 18, O earth, cover not my blood and let my cry find no resting place. So to cover someone's blood is another way of describing to, to, to put an end to something, to cover it up, to finish it, to hide it, to disclose something. And he's saying, I might be on my way out. He believes he's dying. I might be on my way out, but I don't want my, my case, my, my cause, my, my plea before God, I don't want that to die. I want that to keep going. I don't want my cry to find a resting place. I want that to, I want that answer, even if I myself die. Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on high. Who's Job talking about? What is his hope? He's thinking, okay, I might be done. I might not be able to have my my real-time conversation with God. I may not have my, my day in court, my, my day where I can plead myself, my, my case before God. So I desire someone else to testify on my behalf, a witness who could argue my case before God, someone who could stand before God, who has the authority and status to stand before God and argue a case with God. Even though Job's earthly friends have deserted him, this would be his heavenly friend who takes up his case. So it's not Job himself, it's not Job's earthly friends, because he has none. 
And this witness is already in heaven. It says, he who testifies for me is on high. So who's he talking about? Yeah. He's looking for a heavenly person who can go before God and speak to God on Job's behalf. But he's already on high, and he has the authority and status to speak to God. Job is asking for God to plead with God. He's seeking a God-man mediator. He's talking about Jesus. Once again, Job's daydream is a reality. 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. And then Hebrews also, he meaning Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, does Job know the name of Jesus? No, no, no. This is very ancient. This is before the Old Testament was written. But nonetheless, he's talking about Jesus. He's pointing to Jesus. If you recall, Jesus, in, in his exalted state, perfectly fulfills the threefold offices of prophet, priest, and king. As a prophet, Jesus reveals the word of God to us. As a king, he rules over his kingdom. And as priest, he not only offers a sacrifice, but is the sacrifice that was offered on our behalf. And he lives also now to make intercession on behalf of his saints on behalf of his people. So Jesus in this priestly office is in the heavenly realms with the Father interceding on behalf of his sheep. And he does so perfectly. Unlike our prayer life, which is often lacking, Jesus' prayer life is perfect. Jesus is able to perfectly intercede on the behalf of all the saints at all times unceasingly. And we, we see very quickly why our Savior, why this high priestly uh, office must be filled by someone who is both fully God and fully man. We can't do that. We don't have the capacity. We're not divine. We can't perfectly pray for the millions of people that, that, are, that are belonging to God all the time simultaneously. We, we just can't do that. But Jesus can and does. And he always prays for us according to the Father's will, and his interceding prayers are always effective. Jesus has no unanswered prayers. So like Job's daydream, asking for the covering of his sin, this daydream about this, this mediator, God-man, who could plead his case and, and intercede on his behalf, that's a reality in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 22, now we're back to, to being uh, done. He's dwelling on death. Again, I'm, I'm going away. I will not return. And then chapter 17, the entire chapter is, is, is Job speaking from the standpoint of no hope. So I, I don't want to take a... Um, I, I don't think this chapter warrants a verse-by-verse -verse walkthrough of every single line because it all contains one singular theme. There's not a whole lot of novel theological doctrine being introduced. And most of the verses in this chapter are fairly self-evident. For, for example, uh, verse 1, my spirit is broken. That means Job's spirit is broken. Verse 2, surely there are mockers about me. His three friends are mockers about him. So I, I'm not sure we need to break down each one. Just know that he's dwelling on death. Uh, verse 3, lay down a pledge for me with you. Job is asking for God to verify his innocence because no one else can. 
But the whole chapter is Job lamenting his, his suffering, he's, he, he's lamenting uh, his, his pain. At the same time, he's remaining opposed to his friends. He's not accepting their, their worldview. And as hopeless as he feels, he still remains uh, firm in his beliefs. Look at verse 10. But you, come on again, all of you, and I shall not find a wise man among you. Which is kind of interesting, because back in chapter 13, he called them all to be silent. Now it seems like he's challenging them. He said, come on, I'll, I'll take you all on. So he still has enough energy to respond to them. But in general, he's dwelling on death. Look at 11 through 16. My days are past. I make my bed in darkness. The pit, the worm, descend into dust. There's, he's just dwelling on darkness. There's really not a whole lot else to see here in chapter 17. But there's something else going on. We need, to, we need to see this. Now, if we were to summarize 16 and 17, it would look something like this. We, we see Job responding to the second speech of Eliphaz, calling the three of them miserable comforters. None of their speech can assuage his pain, and his own words do not diminish his suffering. And the thing that causes him the most pain of all is his fractured relationship with God. God has seemingly turned against him. If only he daydreams, there was some sort of God-man who could plead his case and make his argument before God on his behalf. But alas, his days have been cut short, and although he has enough energy to continue to respond to his friends, he knows that ultimately all he has to look forward to are death and the grave. That would be a, a summary of what's going on in these two chapters. Now we can see how this passage explicitly or overtly points us to Jesus Christ in that daydream. Once again, who else could this possibly be? This, this God-man mediator who stands before the Father and intercedes on behalf of his people. Of course, that's Jesus performing his role as mediator and as perfect priest. But that is not the only Christ reference. Remember I told you to put it back on the back burner. Let's bring it up to the front burner as we, we take a look at it. Remember the first takeaway was that his greatest pain of all was his broken relationship with God being cut off. Okay, That's, that's the, the front, the issue that we see. The something else going on is this. As a type of Christ... Job is pointing us to Jesus. And not just in the daydream. As a type of Christ, Job is pointing us to Jesus. Let's start with back in, in verse 2, Job 16, 2. I have heard many such things, miserable comforters are you all. Compare that to Psalm 69, 20. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found one. Now we're going to go through and, and walk through several comparisons between the text in Job and the psalmist and New Testament passages. And we're going to see that they line up in a way that is unmistakably prophetic, unmistakably pointing us to Jesus Christ. Yes, Job was deserted by everyone. Even, even uh, his, his uh, own wife turned against him, but so was Jesus. Even his own disciples in the garden. Remember what it said? And they all fled. They all fled. And then later Peter in the courtyard of the high priest denying Jesus with a curse. 
Job 16.10, men have gaped at me with their mouth. Psalm 22.13, they open wide their mouths at me. Now remember, when we hit the psalm passages, these are messianic psalms. These are of David pointing forward to Jesus. Job 16.10, they have struck me insolently on the cheek. Matthew 26, then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him. Job 16.10, they massed themselves together against me. Matthew 27.1, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. Job 16.16, 16, my face is red with weeping and on my eyelids is deep darkness. Psalm 69.3, I am weary with my crying out, my eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. Job 16.7, surely now God has worn me out, he has made, me, has made desolate all my company. Psalm 38, my friends and companions stand aloof from my plague and my nearest kin stand far off. Job is a living illustration, a living prophetic type pointing forward to Jesus. He is foreshadowing the sufferings of Jesus. So Job is giving us more than just words to describe his pain. He is, he is pointing us forward to our Savior. He is prophesying the way of Jesus. Undeserved suffering followed by exaltation. That was the way of Jesus, remember? Undeserved suffering, exaltation. What's Job going through? Undeserved suffering, the, the book makes a point to make sure we understand that it's undeserved. Followed by exaltation in Job chapter 42. The language is also witnessing to the work of the Holy Spirit as he inspired the writing of Job. This language is intentionally mirroring the language of, of the Psalms in the New Testament as they both find fulfillment. Again, did Job know that he was a living type pointing forward to Jesus? No. But now with the full revelation of God before us, we know that Job's experience was serving that exact purpose. This is the something else that's going on. As William states, we can read Job with its full redemptive history, historical purpose and view. It's more than an ancient snapshot of a tragedy holding only the same morbid interest to a passerby as a car accident on the freeway. It's a reflection of something truly sacred in the heart of the believer, a faint but real image of what Christ would suffer in the flesh for the sake of our redemption. Do we see what's going on here? Do we see the something else? Because here's the thing. Sometimes when Job is studied, if, if, if in, a, in a Bible study or if it's preached, we get to those, those applications that are on the surface, and they're there. They're there. Uh, how to endure suffering. How to, how to trust God when times are tough. Amen. How to be a good friend. How to comfort others. All suffering has a purpose. Yes, of course, those are good applications. And we've made a lot of those as we've gone through, because they're there. But if that's where the application stops, if, if Job is simply this, uh, this story of a guy who suffers a lot, and, well, let's see what we can wor learn about suffering. If that's where it stops, then we are missing what God has intended this book to be. There's something else going on. 
In addition to all those good practical applications, the book of Job is purposely giving us another book in the Bible that points us to Jesus Christ. That is the message, after all, of the entire book, is the overarching message. The Bible consistently and repeatedly provides Jesus as the focal point with unmatched levels of complexity and detail. And each individual book is in complete unity with the rest of the books in the Bible. Jesus, life in his name, forgiveness of sins in his name, and restored relationship with God in his name. Restored relationship. What was, what was Job's biggest uh, pain again? Fractured relationship. This is the dark irony of Job's suffering. Job's fractured relationship with God actually points us to the only one who can restore our relationship with God. And God wants us to see this. Job is pointing people to Jesus. He's pointing people to the arbiter, the mediator, who, uh, that, that he longs for. That He's pointing to the one who is, is his advocate or his, his intercessor in heaven. He's pointing people to the one who covers sin and brings people into a right relationship with God. He's pointing to the heavenly witness who presents our petitions before the Father. That's, that's what's going on here. That's the something else. We've had a lot of good practical application as we move through the book of Job. And Lord willing, we'll continue to have some good practical rubber meets the road application. But this morning, we don't want to miss God's intended purpose for this book, and that is to point us to his son, Jesus. Amen. Father, we thank you that you have revealed your son to us, not only in the pages of, of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but also throughout every page of scripture. Father, we thank you that we have Job, who is a living type pointing forward, prophesying the way of the Savior. Lord, we don't want to miss that. Father, help us to see Jesus whenever we open your word. Amen.